Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is Paul Axton. I'm here discussing today the problem of demons or dealing with demons, at least as Paul uh, presents the problem in Corinthians. And it's interesting the point at which he brings up possibility of demons entering in. He's agreed with the Corinthians that the idol is nothing. But then in chapter 10, he says the worship of idols is potentially demonic. And of course, he can't mean that it's that there is some sort of direct access to the spiritual realm because he's already eliminated the possibility that they're actually dealing directly with the spiritual realm. And so what does he mean here? And I think that what he's getting at may be our proper approach to dealing with demons. I remember when I was a teenager that uh, there was a book, you know, Dealing with the Devil. And I think that there is a kind of unhealthy fascination that we can become obsessed in precisely the wrong way that a right reading of the New Testament will relieve us of. And that is that the demonic in some way, is precisely connected in Paul with realizing the idol is nothing, but then, because of this, colluding with the idols. And that's what the Corinthians are in some way doing, that they've said, well, that it's just a piece of wood or a piece of stone. Paul says, well, this is itself a problem. In some way, you can, you know, you can't just presume, and I think this is what they're doing, that they would presume they can go and participate in the meals that maybe they're sort of like business luncheons. We don't quite know, but in the courts of the temple, it may be that their business contacts would uh, enable them to you know, move up in the society and that the this fellowship, and that's what Paul is referring to it is, a koinonia fellowship that can displace the koinonia or the fellowship that we have in Christ. He's not saying, he, he says again, it's yes, it's true, the food offered to idols does not amount to anything. It's not connected with a ontological reality, might be the way we would put it philosophically. But he says you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of the demons. And so the devilish or the demonic in this scripture, maybe just as in Genesis 3, is not portrayed as some positive ontological force, you know, that you get as in Satanology or Anton LaVey, you know, in which you might say, well, Satan, be thou my God, and imagine that in some way we can manipulate the spiritual realm, the demonic realm, which a lot of religion, even though they might not refer to the gods as demons, that's really what, even in their portrayal, they look like and they amount to. And what is presumed is that uh, by doing the whatever the religion prescribes, offering the certain sacrifices, that in some way you can ward off, and it is usually a warding off, it is a fearful thing, the uh, demonic. And I think that's part of what is recognized here when saying the demons, or you know, that the, the idol is nothing, but then connecting it to, to demons. It is a two-step process, and so we're not to, to miss that two-step process, as in Genesis 3. The corrupting 
force, the serpent there, is a very ambiguous force that it is a subpersonal kind of entity. It's a it's arises from out of the dirt that appears, it disappears. And so just uh, the context there of what that thing is that appears out of creation, I believe it's ambiguous and I believe it's meant to be ambiguous. And I think that's true throughout scripture that in dealing with the devil, you know, this is N.T. Wright's point that maybe it's not a personal reality, but it's a subpersonal it sort of reality. Whatever we might make of this, we can see that what it does in Genesis and what it does throughout Scripture is always the same thing, and that is, I think, the significance here, that nothing, in a series of nothings, you know, death is a kind of nothingness in the lie of Satan, that you won't die, you'll be like gods, that life, then, is displaced by death, we might say that God himself is displaced. Well, what displaces him is, in fact, an absence. And this, of course, I think defines the human pursuit throughout history, is that this absence is something that takes up residence within ourselves. This is, I think, the significance of the postmodern realization, somebody like Jacques Derrida, that presents the human pursuit as a pursuit of presence. I think that's right, that in some way we experience an absence at the very center of ourselves. Our desire or the human striving is to in some way fill that absence with a presence that, of course, as Augustine says, is a a God-shaped vacuum in the human heart. In the Genesis narrative, in place of knowing God, that is knowing and the ontological reality of God, knowing loops back on itself. It's a self-referential, knowing good and evil. And this then describes the way in which we would know outside of the knowing that is portrayed, I think, there in Genesis and that is reinstituted in Christ. That is, there's two forms of knowing. There is a a knowing that is reflexive, or, you know, we can say that in a grammatical sense, that language refers to itself. We can say it in a human sense, that self-reflexivity in someone like Descartes is simply a reference, as in Plato, the mind's mirror, and we imagine that we get an essence in the mind's mirror. That's the significance of Anselm. But I think that what is actually done, and this is, you know, whether you want to talk about this philosophically, I think this is the significance of Slavoj Zizek, of Jacques Lacan, working in a Freudian psychoanalytic frame, that the death drive is actually descriptive of this nothingness, this uh, thanatology, as it's in some way taken up, that there is a frustration, there is an absence. And so a part of creation in in this, as Paul describes it in Romans 1, is in some way, and by a part of creation, you know, an animal, an image, even a human image, which ontologically is nothing. Certainly a piece of wood is, well, in reality, it's something, a creature is something. And so throughout, the knowledge focuses as in idolatry on what is, is in fact an ontological nothing. 
And so this is the definition, I think, not just of idolatry, that this is the definition that we'll, we'll encounter in a, in a variety of fields, psychoanalysis, philosophy, nationalism, you know, just uh, sociology, anthropology. Again and again, what is occurring is that what is ontologically nothing is made an absolute something. And, of course, this is the significance of deconstruction, is to recognize there's nothing there. And this, I think, you know, if we're talking, I've talked previously about anarchism or the arche, and that Christianity is over and against the principle of what this world does. But what we need to recognize is that this againstness is like a negation of death, a negation of absence, that it's not simply against something, but in fact it's against that which would displace reality, it would displace God, it would replace true knowledge. So in fact it's against uh, the, the, what Christianity does, and this is reflected in the grammar of the New Testament, that there's a kind of negation of a negation. The arcade, the principle of the world, it constitutes a closed world, a world in which in everyday life that value is determined by money. You know, what is a piece of money? It's uh, especially in the American system. We used to be on the gold standard so that the money actually referred to something. But now, like language itself, it is simply simply something that circulates, it's a sign. And we can say that about all things that, you know, uh, that are a human construct, power, position, that they're always measured within a closed system in comparison within the system. And this is usually, you know, whether it, it's always of necessity, as with capitalism, so too the human economy in all of its forms and maybe the psychoanalytic here is especially interesting, but, it's a, but it is always a zero-sum game. That is that there's only a limited resource to go around, and so the anatomy of envy, the anatomy of jealousy, is that there is a, a kind of frustration, a, a panic that sets in, that there's only so much to go around, and you better grab it. Grab all the gusto you can, because... It, it's limited. Grab it before it's gone. What the, the first couple achieve in place of relationship is a series of negations, that there is a, a alienation, a disrelationship. So evil, in this sense, the demonic, the devil, whatever we might portray it as, that the evil is not some positive ontological counterforce. We're not dealing with the dualism. You know, this is Manichaeanism, but this is also the history of the religions of this world. This is Gnosticism, that it presents the world. This is, you know, kind of the Star Wars cosmology, that there's the dark side and the light side of the force. But evil, as defined by Augustine, and I think he's correct here, is a, a privation. The idol is nothing, is what Paul says, and the Corinthians are. We think that Paul may be quoting the Corinthians, and he says that's right. But they imagine this nothing, since it does not amount to anything, is harmless. But Paul corrects them. 
He says, yes, it's nothing, but this means that it is potentially demonic. So whatever a demon or devil might amount to, and I'm honestly sort of agnostic here, I, I, I'm not sure. I think it's okay to be agnostic about demons. Is it a spirit being or a subpersonal being, or is it simply an orientation and inclination? It is summed up again and again as dangerously nothing, a covenant with death, an absence, an alienation. And so the practical effect of this nothing is that things we might consider, you know, as bearing no significance, this is what the Corinthians are doing with the idols. They say, well, these aren't, they're nothing, and therefore they're insignificant. But Paul's counter to this is to say, well, amounting to nothing can actually have profound significance. We have to bring in that this is in regard to the weak. When you take in love and the concern for the weak, appearances actually do matter. To eat or not in, eat in the temple, to, to partake of this meat, the power of evil, we might say, is to be found in mistaken perceptions, deceived, a deceived understanding. Being mistaken or deceived does not reduce the evil effect. You know, oh, this is just an appearance that I assume is, is a reality. Or to, No, this is the evil effect. There is a difference between reality and perception. One pertains to God and his creation, and the other pertains to a mere construct. A temple, something which in fact amounts to nothing, an idol, has the power, whatever form it might take, whether it's nationalism, tribalism, outright religious idolatry, these constructs that amount ultimately to an ontological nothing, Yes, they can consume your lives. Oh, the idol has no existence, no real existence, but this applies to all the threats which we face. Their significance is purely symbolic, but that's why they're dangerous. Yes, it's a mere piece of wood. It's a mere stone. You know, in case of the flag, yes, it's just a piece of cloth. But ultimate value can be vested in this symbol. And so maybe it is simply fashion and appearance, yet some have vested their entire lives in this sort of appearance. And so in this section, you know, in Corinthians, that part of what is at stake is that Paul is encouraging human agency and human freedom. Uh, he tells the Corinthians, judge for yourselves. He tells them to use their intelligence, their judgment, of course not some sort of isolated judgment apart from revelation or from Christ, but they are expected to reflect on the decisions that they can own as their own. Certainly their decision must be informed by Scripture, by apostolic teaching, by the Holy Spirit. Paul will criticize a reliance upon a kind of self-reflexive, isolated knowing, knowledge, gnosis, the supposedly uh, assumed a priori grasp that we find, I think, in modernity is not just modern. I think that's always the human turn to a self-reflexive kind of understanding.
Coming to know truly is a process in which love for the other, scripture, openness to God's spirit, apostolic testimony, they certainly are uh, essential elements. Paul says, you know, and I think we need to recognize this, that we have nothing to fear. Yes, there's nothing there. That is a significant realization. You know, this is kind of uh, Peter Berger's point about the social construction of reality, that like the idol, that there's externalization. You know, think of the idol maker in Isaiah, that he crafts the idol, and uh, then he turns to eat his lunch and turns back and in some way, he's made this thing, so he's externalized it, and then he turns back and he bows down and worships it as if he did not make it. He objectifies it. And then in worshiping it, of course, he internalizes it. So that even though it is a force that he himself has posed, presented, it's a force that acts back upon him. It is internalized. It impacts his thought. It impact, impacts society. And that's the way the social construction of reality works, that we can reify the human constructs, human belief systems, human socioeconomic systems, nationalism. These are human constructs. At some level, they amount to nothing. But people invest their lives or they die for this nothing. And so... Christians must ensure that they do not actively uh, participate in these in the sense of pledging loyalty or imagining that they have a solidarity on the order of God, that the koinonia of demons is of an essence, that, uh, you know, in some way is an uh, ontological reality on the order of the koinonia of the body of Christ. Paul has already explained this. He says in chapter 2, verse 6, these things are doomed to pass away, that their power is crumbling. God alone is sovereign. And so what is, in contrast to what is a reality, that is participation in Christ, the fellowship, this stands over and against this kind of false koinonia. And so to confuse nothing with something will do its damage precisely here. It will take away from what is real, and that is demonic. Well, the communal participation should not be confused. You know, I think this is the problem with transubstantiation or magical notions of taking pieces of bread and juice and imagining that this is the koinonia or that there is a real presence simply in the elements. No, the real presence, yes, it's there, but it's found in the fellowship. And so there are two types, and I think this we only get the... the feeling of the contrast between these two types of fellowship and recognizing as Paul lays out two possibilities we can sup with demons or we can sup with the Lord and dining with demons a demonic koinonia whatever else it is that it is powerful because it is an obstruction to the real thing to the true fellowship each meal, and in, in both instances it's literally a meal, we're talking about eating something, about table fellowship. Both create a relation of koinonia among the participants. But in the one instance, it is referencing sharing in the body and blood of Christ, in, a, in deity, in God. Not, not magically ingesting, 
mysteriously ingesting Christ. Paul means that the participants in the supper are brought into partnership or covenant or fellowship or participation with Christ through sharing with the meal. And we can get this you know, from the Old Testament reference that he makes here to Deuteronomy 14.23. It was simply the meal they, they would eat together, eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and olive oil and firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord. Here's presence, the way we regain presence in the face of absence is connected even in the Old Testament, not with transubstantiation, but with this meal. And so this example shows that Paul, he's not thinking of some of a transubstantiation sort of meal, uh, or rather of union. It's an idea that would, is totally foreign to the Old Testament. I believe it's foreign to the New Testament. The meal is to be eaten in the presence of the Lord, as a sign of the covenant relation between God and the people, a covenant that binds the people together, as it says. So they sacrifice, this is Deuteronomy 32.7, to false gods, which are not God. Gods they had not known, gods that had recently appeared, gods your ancestors did not fear. And the significance of you know, Paul's reference here this isn't pagans, this isn't heathens, as some translations would have it. This is Jews doing this. And so it may be that demons are always involved in idolatry, but the significance, what that idolatry functions to do is displace God, to displace the fellowship with God, to displace real presence, we might say. And this is most evident in the case of Israel. It brings out the full effect of the fall and its displacement of God with these absences. And so, the, you know, this is Paul's point to Corinthians, that just as the Jews were in danger of falling back into idolatry and did fall back, Paul is portraying himself, he's acting sort of like an Old Testament prophet in trying to shame the Corinthians. You know, he says this in chapter 6, I say this to your shame. Uh, this is what the prophets would do when they would, you know, it's pictured in many places when the prophet comes upon the idolatrous scene, it's often pictured as a kind of the Jews engaging in adultery, engaging uh, themselves with prostitutes, adulterating themselves. And the prophet comes onto the scene and, you know, it's pictured that he throws back the covers and reveals what's going on. He shames them. And in doing this, he brings God, that is the shame, is, yes, shame is negative, but it's also a good thing in that this shame should bring about repentance because the shame is connected with the presence, the eyes of God through the prophet. Paul then is trying also to give a more holistic picture to draw them out. You know, this is of their abusive relationship. They literally, apparently, are going to visit prostitutes. They're abusing the weak. They're eating in the temples. And shame is the moment of self-awareness, the awareness that you need to be have of other people, of God. And this, then, that, that shame in is the possibility for love to enter in where there was no love. And so this is, I think, the role of revelation. Certainly it's the role of the prophetic revelation. The personal or the divine intrudes on what might otherwise be 
complete closedness, isolation. You know, we might talk about a closed world. Well, what's more closed than an idolatrous relationship in which the focus is purely on the idol? And we might say that anything that absorbs our attention, closes it off from the transcendent, is idolatrous. And so in this sense, shame is anarchic. It disrupts, it disturbs. It causes a, a world to fall apart, that it should fall apart, it will fall apart. You know, that shame uh, is always the result. You know, this is pride comes before a fall. Pride is the picture of someone imagining that they cohere, that they hold together. And they don't. They can't. And in a sense, none of us are in the, have the capacity to hold ourselves together through our own means. And so the idolatrous is like the pornographic. Pornographic is, you know, that's deployed throughout the Old Testament. You know, this is the picture in Ezekiel, that the idolaters are characterized as adulterers, and there's these horse-sized phallic symbols, idols, which in archaeology, if you've ever studied, that the phallic symbol is uh, the most ancient of the idolatrous symbols, the phallic symbols. I know this was true in Japan, that the little uh, uh, the little Buddhas that you often see uh, they are curiously shaped, and many think that, that it goes back to a, a phallic symbol. And you can find literal phallic symbols in Japan and, and in other places. And, of course, the phallic idol, the, you know, as image, is clearly focused on human physicality, the organic, the orgasmic human desire. So that this desire displaces desire for God. And the pursuit of this image, you know, the idol is literally the tselem uh, that displaces the image, the tselem of God. It displaces the humans, literally. The idol is, you know, in a sense, it's displacing God, but it's also displacing a proper human self-relationship in that we are to be the image bearers. And by creating this pornographic religion, this idolatrous religion. It uh, undoes, this is a, in a sense it doesn't, you know, it's almost kind of an illustration maybe. Idolatry, we, you know, humans are just idol factories. We're always manufacturing idols and the literal religion, I think, just does what people do. That it is the picture that Peter Berger paints of the, the social construction of reality. And so to do this thing, to suppress this shame is necessary because what ultimately, and this is the picture in Ezekiel in many places, that this pornographic exponential desire connected to the religion will become an all-consuming desire in which human sacrifice, people will pass their children through the fire, they'll give up everything for this desire. And maybe the world coheres around this. And this is, you know, idolatry in this sense may just be definitive of the closed world. It's devoid of the transcendent. It's always reductive. It's always sacrificing people, whether literally in idolatrous religion or simply sacrificing them to the nation state, sacrificing them to the, their own desire. 
And of course, that's the picture in Scripture. There are two kinds of sacrifice. There's the sacrifice of Cain, in which he would sacrifice his brother Abel. There's the sacrifice of the brothers of Joseph, who would sacrifice Joseph. There's a, this is a thematic in Scripture. That, you know, this is the Solomon of wisdom when the two prostitutes present themselves to Solomon. The one would sacrifice the child for her own benefit. The other then represents the alternative that she would relinquish her rights to the child. That this is, of course, Christianity, that there are those who would sacrifice Christ and those who would, in fact, take up their own crosses and not sacrifice the other but lay down their lives for the other. Paul is using you know, he, a, a kind of prophetic kind of shame to bring out, to expose them to a more holistic, a transcendent kind of world. And may, maybe this is just, the, uh, this is the great discovery, I think, in recent psychoanalytic literature. They've rediscovered and they often make the reference to Genesis, the psychoanalytic literature does, not that it necessarily believes these stories, but what we've often missed in modern theology is the extent to which the Old Testament is not so much focused on guilt, which is a kind of partial understanding, but a holistic shame that is all-consuming, that is connected to death. That, you know, to die of shame is a saying in English, but that saying gets at the Old Testament picture that the end point of shame is connected to the grave. This is David's prayer to God that he would not be undone in death. Don't let me be put to shame. Do not my, let my body see decay. And of course that's the sermon that Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost and says that David is, we see his tomb, but the tomb of Christ is empty. That shame is then the root negative emotion, the root of human, the human problem. It's the feeling of being undone, of not enduring. It's the attempt to isolate the physical, to, to be shameless, to throw off shame. But the recognition to experience shame, in fact, there is still possibility of hope because it opens one up then to something beyond the closed physical drives of sex and hunger. Now, there are those that are portrayed, I think, uh, you know, this is the generation of Noah. There are those that are portrayed as shameless, and apparently there is a kind of psychopathology, literally, connected to shamelessness, that uh, sociopaths or psychopaths don't experience shame. Maybe these people, like the generation of Noah, are beyond hope of redemption. But as long as we are open to shame, we're open to a more holistic spiritual existence and possibility beyond the physical. You know, and clearly shame is connected with physical. It's a physical reaction, turning red, wanting to cover up. But it's also very, it, it is an indication of human spirituality. You know, this is what a person is, that he is the strange combination. We do find it in the animal world. They don't experience shame, and we apparently don't find it in the angelic world. 
because it's the fusion, it's the combination of the spiritual and the physical. They're conjoined, and this is brought out in the shame experience. It brings out this more holistic perspective. And not just about, you know, when we say spiritual here, that it has the idea of uh, a social individual, social in the group, that shame is seeing ourselves through the eyes of another, through another person, through the eyes of God. So the potential of a closed world is to shut off this open possibility. That's partly what it means. That is, to be a, a true idolater, a pornographer, to abuse, to sacrifice, you know, though we mean idolatrous sacrifice or to abuse children as you know this is uh, the thing that's happened with Robert Kraft uh, the, apparently this billionaire that's uh, employing sex slaves and maybe it's the people that are most successful that the people who are shameless in our own society seem to be the most powerful very often maybe through wealth or the you know this is R. Kelly that He's uh, able to use his his power and wealth and craft uh, through the or or even this you know recently the Southern Baptists that, that chronicled major sexual abuse, some seven hundred survivors they're saying children as young as three years old and some two hundred offenders who were convicted or who took plea deals. That, that we're just, in our culture, we're surrounded by at least forms of shamelessness in the ministry, in the priesthood, in pop culture, in, you know, the business world, in the film industry. Maybe it is the capacity to close off your world through this sort of empowerment. Maybe this is what human power consists of. The ability, you know, human pride to, in some way, uh, imagine that your world holds together, and the better that you can do that, the more shameless you become. So that priests, politicians, the iconic leaders of the culture excel in shamelessness because they have the resources to, to do it. Now, not to say that that's the only place, but one apparently can best accomplish the suppression of shame, of shame full occupation with pleasuring the self through occupying a place of power in the culture, money, position, fame, so that you can most openly spend the coin of success in this culture at this point in time, in shameless abuse of whether it's minors, whether it's sex slaves, and maybe the, 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 these icons of the culture are just the best students in absorbing the lessons of culture of casting off shame. Maybe this is the way they've achieved power in the first place, that shameless use of others, that wealth and power in the first place go together so that the achievement of the one has already in some way numbed them to the possibility of shame and to love. The point here is that subjecting to shame is the experience of powerlessness. Because the, the alternative to shame, human pride, is the feeling of power, of uh, the feeling of, in some ways, being able to defend yourself, being able to hold together. And obviously what's happening in, in these instances in our culture with Robert 
Kraft, with R. Kelly, with the Southern Baptists, with the endless stream of preachers. These are not people that in some way have discovered the power of love, human warmth, but in some way they've been caught up in the idolatrous sort of imaging of, that we like at a computer screen, the image that captures them, the simulacrum of you know, something that is in fact simply a flickering image is taken to be an ontological reality. That's demonic. That's where it enters in. And Paul is attempting to turn the Corinthians from this cold sacrifice of the other. You know, that's what the Corinthians are doing when they say that the, the idol is nothing. Then they're presuming that they can in some way continue to eat in the temple courts of the or the idol temples. And in doing so, Paul is saying, well, you're sacrificing the weak. They're using their freedom to exercise their own rights. And this, Paul, is connecting to the demonic. The point here is that Paul is attempting to reconstruct, to refill the imagination, turning the Corinthians from gnosis, from rights, from freedom, from impersonal principles, to the valuation of persons. And this, then, is uh, the, the turn of, uh, from the demonic, which shame brings about, the turn from the demonic, the nothing, to reality. So where the value system is gauged by rights, by freedom, well, people become objects, they become means of exchange, means to an end. And Paul is attempting to awaken them. He's attempting to awaken us to a koinonia of love which in which people are inherently valuable. And the mnemonic then would be that which would devalue, depersonalize, empty out, make of an absence. The way that we deal with the demonic in Paul's picture is that we don't in some way directly deal with the devil, but in fact uh, we recognize that this is an empty power and we put in place of the law, you know, this is the, certainly there is a suspension of the law, there's a suspension of the power of the demonic, the nothingness over us, but you can't just leave it at that, this was my recent blog that this is itself a kind of unleashing of the demonic. This is the power of communism and deconstruction, postmodernism. It all recognizes that things are a construct and then presumes to undo this construct. It is a power that is, you know, you can put your hand on the levers of control, creating morals, creating ethics, but just leaving it at deconstruction, just recognizing the idol as nothing, as an end in and of itself, and I believe that's where postmodernism leaves us. It is just a kind of throwing off of constraint, and there is a certain power to be recognized. I think that Marxism, socialism, communism, deconstruction has hit upon what is in fact a uh, originally a Christian realization. And Paul is warning the Corinthians, just don't leave it there. The idol is nothing. Yes, that's true. We're free from the law. Yes, that's true. But not all things are helpful. Uh, what he places the law suspended, but not that lawlessness reigns, but how the law
Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.